Welcome to the South Carolina Department of Mental Health's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion podcast episode, Racial Equity. Donald Whitehead. I am the co-founder of Racial Equity Partners, and we are working uh, in conjunction with the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Uh, Today uh, on the podcast, we're going to explore history. Uh, We want to look into uh, some of the really important parts of our history uh, that go unnoticed, undiscovered, uh, and and sometimes forcefully uh, prohibited. Uh, So we want to talk about some of those things. We want to talk about South Carolina, but we want to talk about the issue of structural racism uh, in its entirety. Uh, Some of the things that we we think you might not know uh, and and others that you do know, but you may not know uh, from the frame that we'll be bringing up. So I want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, And today I have an amazing guest, uh, Dr. Lamont Green. Um, is one of the nation's foremost experts on racial equity and uh, structural racism. Uh, he also brings a really important knowledge of the homeless system uh, into the discussion and also a, a knowledge of mental health. Uh, so we're, we're, we're really excited about having him today. And uh, we're, we're sure at the end of the day, you'll be excited as well. So Dr. Green, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you, Donald, for that very generous introduction. <laughs> Glad to be here. Honestly, the introduction was probably understated. You are you are just amazing. You're one of my heroes. Oh no. <laughs> um, so you know, there uh, in South Carolina, we've been working with uh, the South Carolina Department of Mental Health uh, for a little over a year now, and and I, I tell you, I've been really you know shocked at some of the things that we found. We found you know a blatant structural racism within the mental health system. There was a mental health, uh, there were mental health facilities for blacks and mental health facilities for whites all the way into the 70s. Wow. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that that stuck out to me about South Carolina, I guess a few things, and, and, and then I'll, uh, we'll jump into the questions. One was uh, South Carolina had a, right after the 14th and 15th amendments, Um, South Carolina had a majority Black legislature, and uh, it was actually forcefully removed. Uh, When when people think about insurrection and talk about insurrection, uh, South Carolina had one of the first insurrections and and also had this majority uh, Black legislator that actually did some really good work. If you dig into the history and see some of the things they came up with, it's very, very impressive. Uh, but unfortunately, they were um, removed uh, after uh, the protection for people in the South was taken away um, after Rutherford P. Hayes uh, ended office and made that bargain um, to get get the soldiers out of the South. So any thoughts about that? I, I saw you shaking your head. Any, any thoughts about that South Carolina legacy? Yeah, it, it is quite a legacy. Um... And you know, Donald, I am from South Carolina. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. Yes. Uh, and from the Mount Pleasant area. 
the Gullah Geechee, Sweetgrass people in the Low Country. Um, and so, although I've been living in Washington State for you know over the past twenty years, I got a lot of family there, and I'm very familiar with that um, that part of our history and this kind of great opportunity that was then undermined as racism and slavery recreated itself. One of the reasons I wanted to have you here is I knew your background. I knew um, that you were uh, a former resident and and have a lot of family members there. Um, you know, I know the first time I went to South Carolina uh, to speak was in in 2004, and the Confederate flag was still at the state house. Yeah, yeah, those images. Well, and 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 you know, I think people would be shocked to know that there was actually, um, you know, we one of the th missing parts of history is the many massacres that happened in, in so many, we, we, we talk about the Tulsa riot a lot, but we know there were many, many more, including the last one I think on record was in South Carolina. Um, it was actually uh, at uh, the, it was called the Orangeburg massacre. Uh, and that was in 1968. In 1968, there was a, a, a number of students that were killed um, after uh, Martin Luther King's death, unbelievably, it was 1968. And I think, you know, that's a misconception uh, that people have as well. You know, just the legacy of slavery and segregation. If you look at it in its totality, American slavery was 246 years. We had segregation for another 89 years. And although, you know, we, we look at it as, you know, kind of a seminal moment, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, we know that schools today are probably more segregated than they were then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then mass incarceration, and the mass incarceration is transforming itself um, as uh, governments are recognizing that brick and mortar prisons are too expensive. And so now we're moving into an age of digital incarceration. Exactly, exactly. And, and explain that for people a little bit. It constantly kind of reinvolves itself, you know, um, slavery and racism. It it does, and you know, uh, over and over we find different ways. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on a couple of other statistics that really stand out to me uh, when I think about this issue. Now we talked about Brown versus Board of Education, um, but what's happening in education? I don't think people know very much about. So 16% you know, of the students are African-American, but they receive 25% of the suspensions. And for preschool children, it's, they make up 18% of the population, but 48% of the suspensions. And we know that suspended students are three times more likely uh, to, to drop out of school and, and be involved in the, the prison pipeline. The fact that we have uh, Forty-eight percent of our African American students being suspended in preschool. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not talking about kids that have had the opportunity to really, you know, form their thought processes. We're talking about babies. Right. Forty-five percent. That that just blows me away. Yeah, that's crazy, Donald. And and you know, there's so many other areas of today's like. You know, one more that really sticks out to me that always, and, and this one sticks out because, you know, you can't explain it all. 
and that is uh, the issue of uh, infant mortality. So the reason why that is so startling to me, and you know, you can say that maybe you know we have too many behavioral problems, and that's why incarceration is higher. We know it's structural racism, but people can sometimes explain that away. What you can't explain away is infant mortality rates. Um, a black woman with an advanced degree, um, her her rate of infant mortality is six point one percent. Um, and if it's a, a white woman with an eighth grade education or, or less, it's 5.9%. So there's no difference in infant mortality rate, even when you factor in someone with an advanced degree, which probably brings in uh, a, a lot more uh, uh, resources and probably uh, much better prenatal care and all of those things. So, you know, someone has to at, at some point explain that to me. I don't, I don't really understand. And you know, Donald, they did a study too on, on infant mortality that was really interesting. And what they found is when women had a black female doctor, infant mortality rates dramatically decreased. Absolutely. Uh, it was the same also uh, when that black female doctors were working with, with white women as well. And so then, you know, really it begs the question uh, and really kind of underscores the racism and bias embedded in our health systems, right? Which we know all too long, right? In um, African-American culture, the distrust with medical systems and the abuse and the bias that contributes to the death of our, our Black infants. And, and, you know, doctors take an oath, um, uh, a Hippocratic oath to, to treat people fairly, uh, to give people the highest possible care and uh, clearly, there's a distinction in that care and mental health as well. We know that um, part of the, the issue, there's a number of issues under mental health that we could dive into. One is the lack of mental health practitioners that are people of color, uh, but also misdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, um, you know, and, and that may be part of the issue with kids. So many of our young kids are, are medicated now. And right. Sometimes, you know, uh, issues like, you know, the reaction to uh, racism and, and all the health aspects of that can be, uh, can be sometimes misinterpreted. And, you know, now you have a kid on some kind of psychotropic um, who may or may not need it, so. Exactly. And they've done studies on that one too, where young adults, young black adults are often overdiagnosed with schizophrenia. Yes. Yeah, so you have one, not enough people in practice, but also you have this overdiagnosis that has always pretty much been there, to be honest. So let's dig into like what do you what surprised you as you as you study history? And I know both of us are constantly looking at, you know, new history and, and what we can think of. What what stands out to you as something that most people would be surprised about if we dive back into history, either South Carolina or National? Yeah, I think something that really struck me, uh, Donald, was this kind of, I went to a workshop and it was also doing, and then it triggered some reading about the Bacon's Rebellion, because yes. this, this idea or construct of whiteness didn't come about until the late 1600s. And so the Bacon's Rebellion was an armed rebellion by Virginia settlers that took place um, in the late 1600s. 
and it was led by Nathaniel Bacon after a colonial governor, William Berkeley, um, uh, refused Bacon's request um, to drive Native Americans out of Virginia, right? And so what was really unique about this is that you had free uh, um, white men, you know, they, they would have indentured servants at that time. They had white yes. indentured servants. So you had um, white men that were no longer indentured servants and free African-Americans that rose up and fought together in Bacon's rebellion. Well, for the colonial powers, this was a major no-no, right? Yes. Because at that time, a freed, or I shouldn't say a freed white man, right? But an, a, a, a white man that was uh, in indentured servitude and no longer under indentured servitude and a freed black man, they had the same rights, right? Yeah. And so this uh, uprising between poor whites and poor and freed blacks scared the colonial powers because surely this group would outnumber them. So this unity between poor white and black workers was horribly terrifying, right? And so they developed the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705, yes. which stripped a lot of the power of blacks, and it was that divide and conquer strategy. So that white and black, poor and working class people will never unite again, right? because they could easily overthrow the uh, 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 aristocracy, right? Right. So this quickly hit on a cunning and cruel and divisive way to do so. And they gave white workers certain rights and advantages over black workers, while at the same time enshrining black slavery into law. And so in the next 25 years after this, a whole series of laws were passed and furthermore, they created that hierarchy of whiteness where, uh, where, where they gave whites a positionality to lord over and to police Black people, right? So now we get into the root of slavery. I mean, the root yes. of policing, right? Which was mm -hmm. to hunt down and return those, return those slaves. And so even today, when we look at poor white people, right? We have a lot of poverty in South Carolina. We have a lot of hardworking poor white people in South Carolina and poor black people and Latinx people, right? That share a similar thread of concern and struggles, but vote very differently, right? Absolutely. And how race is that divide and conquer strategy to flamboozle and distract poor and working class people of all races from uniting, right? That is a, that is um, a really powerful piece of history. You're right that most people won't know, but it also ushered in the brutality of slavery in a different way. So prior to that time, slavery, you know, enslavement of people is always going to be horrendous, but the brutality increased after those slave codes were increased. And uh, the other part of that is as an indentured, uh, indentured servant, you could actually buy your way or earn your way out of slavery. Uh, once, once the slave codes were, were created, it made African slaves, um, slaves for life. Permanent. You were born into slavery. So even before that time, 
if your children were born, they weren't necessarily enslaved. But but after the Bacon Rebellion, and you know the other part of that, Lamont, uh, that is like uh, one of the most important moments in our history. It's been recreated over and over again. This divide and conquer, as as today, um, it's why in our political system you always see these cultural issues that are put in place to divide people and make people vote against their interests. Exactly. Um, it happened in the Civil War. I mean, that's why you got non-property owners voting to make sure property owners were able to keep uh, slavery in place. So it was a seminal moment. Uh, and thank you for bringing that up. And most people don't bring it up. And, and I think the other part of that, uh, Dr. Green, is that, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things that prior to like my deep dive into history that was always like, I, I don't understand this, was the lack of rebellion the lack of fighting or pushing back. But if we look at history, we know there were there were many rebellions. Uh, yes. There were, there were uh, enslaved people that escaped and lived in the mountains. Um, so, you know, that, you know it, it really, to me, uh, gave me a new understanding of people. Um, so what do you think uh, is overlooked in the struggle for equality in our country's history, both good and bad? Uh, what's overlooked? Well, what is overlooked in our country's struggle for equality? I think what is overlooked in the struggle and is the healing aspect, right? It's the aspect of an acknowledgement of I'm sorry, of reparations. Right. Um, you know, there was so much that was exploited from black, brown, and indigenous communities. Um, there've been so many missed opportunities, even when we think about all of the black soldiers that fought in World War II and were not able to take advantage of, uh, you know, no down payment VA loans, right? Right. That was a huge opportunity to uh, right some wrongs, right? right. Uh, because that's where we hold most of our wealth in, in our homes. Um, and so I think for the United States of America, we really need to look at this. There needs to be formal acknowledgement, formal apology, formal healing, um, and reparations um, in this struggle. Um, and, and a lot of folks, we, we, you know, we watch the news, and there's so many different news channels there, but really examining the history, you know, because um, I think the history really grounds us to what's happening. And we can see that these present day manifestations of inequity, these present day manifestations of injustice is all connected to this, this unbroken thread, right, of oppression, right? And how racism constantly kind of like COVID, right? It kind of mutates. So you'll, yes. you'll share some policy. For example, I was shocked um, when I learned that when Ronald Reagan declared the war on drugs, it was in 1982. Yes. And um, uh, drug usage in, the, um, in America was, was, was declining. Yes. And we didn't have the crack cocaine epidemic yet. So the war on drugs was called, 
And then in 1998, they released information. I mean, the CIA didn't formally apologize, but the CIA admitted to their role in allowing the Nicaraguan cartel to uh, 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 bring cocaine, crack cocaine, into the community, specifically into the African-American community, and to and the CIA protected them from any uh, you know, criminal charges and yes. eliminating that um, so that it could fund this guerrilla war. You know, reparations, definitely, because many, many other groups of people have gotten reparations, for one. We know that those that were um, in, in, in internment camps, uh, Japanese uh, individuals, they received reparations. Uh, they got some of their property back. Um, I think another thing that you brought up that is really incredible but may have worked in our benefit was those those returning, and both of us are veterans, so uh, this kind of hits at our you know being, if you will, the idea that a lot of the the the, the soldiers returning from the World War, uh, they weren't sitting back and abused them. Uh, many of them got killed because of that, but they were a really important part of the civil rights movement. Uh, returning soldiers, you know, banded together. They've been trained. Um, now, the the fact that they did not get rewarded with housing after they put their lives on the line is just incredible. It's it's a tragedy um, for anybody. And then, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, his, you know, many people uh, don't understand the racial impacts of all the things that he did. I mean, he basically. Uh, the war on drugs is is kind of the most egregious form, you know. At on one hand, as you said, he's bringing the drugs into the country, but he's 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 assaulting uh, the people that are receiving them, and and that always burns me up uh, when I think about, you know, no one paid a price for that. That's the other part, you know. No one is held accountable. You know, it was really, really, you know, uh, the worst. But if you think about all the lives that have been lost. You know, after that poison was brought into communities, it's the, and thank you again. You you bring up some really good points. Um, the other thing I wanted to dive into, and this is always controversial. Um, you know, we have this CRT thing that we in communities. Um, we have this forceful resistance to learning this history. And I'll add one other thing I learned. You know, uh, is is some of these people who are held in such high regard. You know, they didn't believe that you know they didn't believe that slavery wasn't an evil thing i think about thomas jefferson and ben franklin you know people who held are held in very high regard who were very much in favor of slavery um i think we miss you know some of the achievements of marcus garvey and uh you know phyllis wheatley i mean there's all these figures that don't get a lot of attention and you know people would would really you know um be rewarded if if they had the opportunity to learn about this. So now we're, we're, we're trying to get our kids back to the place where we were, because none of this stuff I learned in school, not, not, not in high school, not in elementary school, not in college. The only thing we learned about was Martin Luther King. So, so why, why do you think, and I, I, you know, why do you think there's such a pressure to keep us from understanding that? Now, and, and I'll tell you my theory, and then I'll, 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 I'll ask you to share yours. You know, I believe there's a fear of the replacement. The, the, the big replacement theory is, is one fear. And also people fear that what was done by them might be done to them. 
if there is a majority. And if people get enough information, then people will be angry. But I don't think, I, I, you know, in, in my opinion, I don't think there's always anger. There's disappointment. There's, uh, there is anger, but there's not anger because we were, we were a very, especially African-Americans, we're a peaceful people. That's part of why, you know, we were able to, to you know, be enslaved in the first place, I think. So um, I, I said a lot, so I want to give it back to you. Oh, so thank you, Donald. I, yeah, I believe it's really, you know, you know the saying, right? The truth shall set us free. <laughs> well, there are some, you know, powers and, uh, you know, greedy folks that don't want the people to be free right? That's going to hurt profits. That doesn't align with our business plan. We don't poor and working class white people and black people and indigenous people and Native American and Asian people to unite, right? Because we would have a whole different social contract where we all can thrive. There's plenty of pie. There's no scarcity, you exactly. know? And so it is very important to keep this racial anxiety in place it's very important to keep this divide and in place. My greatest prayer is that people of all races, poor and working class people will come together because we really hold the power, but they have to keep that kind of distraction in place. And so critical race theory, all critical race theory does, it's really all about history. Let's look at this history. Let's examine what really happened. And when we're learning that history, we're connecting the dots and we're building a critical consciousness of clarity. And that truth is what sets us free. It's what brings together white folks and black folks and black folks and Latin and, and Mexican folks and immigrants and refugees and, and LGBT and Christian and Muslim, right? It heals all these misperceptions and misunderstanding that fuels war and conflict and drama, right? So, so it's a vested interest that the people stay educated so they could easily be food, you know, uh, spoon fed with little sound bites of disinformation and misinformation. Um, but it's really sad, right? And some of those school textbooks that come out of Texas they're trying to recreate the history so much. They're trying to refer to the slaves that were uh, forcefully brought here as immigrants from Africa. Yes, who were well treated, by the way. They were happy. Yeah, they were happy. They were happy, and you know, why did we have to? It it really is is shameful, and and it's you know, and and I think the other, you know, kind of another misconception is this is all Southern stuff too. Um, you know, there was there was just as much slavery in the North. Um, you know, at the time of the Civil War, you know, many, many uh, states had started to outlaw it. But even, you know, even in Ohio, where I'm born, uh, you know, Black codes, um, even though it was the first stop on the Underground Railroad, they still, you know, segregation was alive and well and still alive. It's, it, it should be illegal for people to do that. And, you know, through history, Martin Luther King died because of the idea of, of, of uh, connecting poor Blacks and poor whites and other poor people. Um, you know, they uh, kind of ignored him except for the CIA surveillance while he was just doing African-American history. And I, I had a meeting 
with his son. And he basically, uh, he spoke at a conference and he basically said that the idea uh, of homelessness is the unfinished business of the civil rights movement. He was really, you know, hoping to unite people and that that's when he became too dangerous and he had to be eliminated. Some of his uh, allies like the Kennedy, you know, part of their, you know, history and their legacy was was doing the same thing. Have you, there, there's another book called The Sum of Us that, that talks about uh, mutually exclusive ideas, how sometimes people will vote against their own interest to make sure that there's not uh, a sharing of interest between people of different racial backgrounds. Um, you know, some of the, the states like South Carolina that didn't take on Medicare, for instance, there's more uh, white people that need Medicare than people of color, but to keep people of color from getting it, people vote against bringing it into their community, which is, you know, hard to fathom when you think about that. Um, the, the other thing I want to dive into uh, with the remainder of our time is that, you know, we've been on this, this journey for some of us decades, you know, some of us started it really recently, but what is, is a bit of a disappointment to me, Dr. Green, is that there's a lot of discourse. Um, we do trainings all the time. We, 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 you know, to the best of my knowledge, enlighten people about, you know, their history, their current history. Um, but there's really not much policy to follow that. Now, if, if you had, you know, your, if you had the ability to, to create a policy that would really, you know, get to uh, the core issues related to uh, structural racism, what, what kind of policies do you think we need to start kind of moving on to, to really address it in a fundamental way? Because we know that there's still really big issues. Policing, uh, we know that, you know, drugs is still, you know, unequally um, uh, enforced. We know that um, our, our, our systems, whether it's housing or our jobs, uh, they're still uh, really slanted uh, in a way that isn't equal. Um, we know home ownership, we know all of these things, but, but are, are there policies that you can think of that we could start move on some of these issues? I would say if I could wave my magic wand, right, that housing, education, and higher education um, and healthcare uh, would be a, a human right. And um, because as we know with experiences of homelessness and the work that we do uh, with homelessness, uh, what is it like when we look at families um, and the overall homeless population, like uh, African-Americans make up 13% of the US population roughly, but 54% of families experiencing homelessness. And it's also staggering for indigenous folks and native Hawaiian Pacific Islander folks too. And, and of course, this is all connected with structural racism and slavery and all of those things. But housing is so important to have that base, that stable, stable base. And in this country of great wealth and the scarcity mindset, I was reading this report um, and it stated that um, for the amount of money that Americans spend on Christmas lights and Christmas decorations, <laughs> Only the Christmas lights and Christmas decorations each year that that every single person that's experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity could be housed. Wow. And there, and when you compare the cost to ensure that every 
single person in this country has safe and stable housing, that cost is much lower than some of the, um, what do you call it, corporate breaks that we give corporations, right? Tax breaks that yes. we give corporations. Where is the, like, tax breaks to corporations way here, the cost to make sure that everyone has safe and stable housing here, right? Right. And so homelessness is an affordable housing crisis. But what, what is the reason why we don't have enough housing, right? That's, that's the real question. What's driving this? It's not about money. And, and it's about these social norms. Because when you look at who is experiencing homelessness, it's the historically oppressed. It's the Black, Indigenous, you know, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, Latinx. And when you look at the white folks, it's, it's the ones that are considered the white trash, right? Mm -hmm. Ones that are struggling with substance use or that have a disability, right? The unworthy white poor, right? And so this is a group of people that um, society sees as, as the throwaways. And so I think that would be a critical one is um, that housing, healthcare, and education is a right in this country. And you don't have to be worthy for housing, education, and healthcare. And then with, with criminal justice, or I should say, the criminal or criminal and carceral system, I hate to put justice in with that current. Right. There's a lot that needs to be done there. I am super afraid. And Michelle Alexander, she outlines this very well in A New Jim Crow. If yeah. folks have read A New Jim Crow, buy it and read it today. I'm, I'm not getting any money on the side from saying this and doing this commercial. But it's a, um, it really clearly outlines, right? So um, folks are excited about some of the reforms, the drug law reforms and all those other things, but people are being incarcerated. Well, I should say incarcerated, right? They've created new digital prisons with monitoring that's much more lucrative than brick and mortar. And these digital prisons will allow us to have open air prisons where entire communities can be open air digital prisons where people are monitored and a new type of redlining where if you step foot out of that area, then you could be arrested, right? Wow. And so with technology, it is creating this ability to track and monitor and create much larger, vaster networks of digital open air prisons. So we're moving away from mass incarceration to mass incarceration. And once people are branded in the criminal legal system, you know, your, your education benefits are denied. You know, yes. you now are a type of legal uh, second class citizen, right? So it's, a, it's a now another new type of um, slavery. A, a new type of racialized uh, caste system. And so I think that that is extremely scary. And, um, and a lot of the information and data, uh, for example, they say, oh, the, the, the disparities are greatly decreasing uh, when we look at people of color versus white that are being arrested and incarcerated. But when we look at a lot of that data, they've taken the Latin X or Hispanic population and counting them as white. Right. 
So the data is extremely misleading. It is. So there's a whole host of issues there that needs to be done. And basically, when it comes to the criminal legal system, we need to move away from, as they say, the Black Prisoner Caucus say, from mass incarceration to mass liberation. And it's not going to be through a system of punishments. Uh, punishing people in that way doesn't do any good. And usually when someone's a violent offender, a violent offender is usually someone who has survived violence, right? Yes. So they're victims themselves. They're victims of the structural violence, the systemic violence, intergenerational, right? And so punishment is not going to rehabilitate. No. Putting people in iron cages, how does that do any good but create a mindset to ensure recidivism that ensures greater profits for many corporations' business plans? Such an important area. The other element of that is the number of people suffering from behavioral and mental health issues that, you know, the solution for them is incarceration. You know, the Los Angeles County Jail is our largest mental health facility in the country. Yeah. And what people probably don't know about that is when you take people with mental health issues and you put them in prison, four out of five of them don't get services. So they're locked up and it probably uh, exacerbates uh, whatever underlying condition they have to be put in some sort of solitary confinement um, and without medication. And so the other part of that, Lamont, I would do is like, you know, back to Reagan again and deinstitutionalization, which I think is, you know, as, as bad or worse, uh, one of the, the things that he did, you know, we were supposed to have community-based mental health facilities. We have never done that in this country. And so we need to invest in helping people that do have mental health problems. Um, you know, you brought up the incarceration, you know, you know, people probably don't know that people of color and white people use drugs at the same level, but more black people are incarcerated and their sentences are longer. And so uh, we, we have to figure out how to level that playing field. We still haven't leveled the playing field between crack and uh, cocaine. Um, the penalties are still a lot uh, uh, more severe for people with crack. Um, uh, and, and there's a, a racial divide there. So uh, really important parts of what we have to do. Uh, every other developed country, developed country in this world, you know, has a, a right to housing. Uh, th they signed on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, if we would do that, um, we could really uh, change the dynamics here because you know, you've heard so long that the playing field has been leveled and then you hear stories about the two professors in Baltimore who got their house appraised. Um, and then they had a white friend get the house appraised and the appraisal was three or $400,000 different. Um, or you, you, you hear uh, the many people who are being evicted um, without representation in the country. So, so many other, you know, issues that are out there. The, the other thing I want to touch on and, and we don't, have a lot of time left is one of the one of the, the the areas that I started to do more research on because of my interactions with South Carolina. So I talked to a number of people, did some focus groups, and what I heard from them was that there wasn't racial issues in South Carolina. And this was come again. This is this is a true story. This was right after uh, the gentleman was shot in the back. Um, and after Mother Emanuel, 
Um, and so I had a group of African-American people who'd experienced homelessness and actually some professionals. And, and, and when I talked to both of them, they said that they didn't see racial issues. So the other thing that I think is, is kind of a barrier to us moving through this issue is, is internalized racism. And how many people in our community uh, just wanna, you know, not, uh, not, you know, push the issue or not, not cause any trouble and, you know, kind of walk away from this issue. Do you have any reflections on that at all? Whew, you really opened a door there. That internalized racial oppression is quite a doozy. And yeah, the moment I heard when I heard you say that, it's like, wow, how could anybody think that? But then I realized um, I, I could see how that can be, right? And have known people that are that way too. And I think a part of our kind of awakening um, of that first stage is often denial denying that it exists, you know, and internalized racial oppression is not just something that people of color have to deal with. Every single racial group in America has some level of internalized racial oppression because there's three sides of that coin. There's internalized racial superiority for white folks. There's internalized racial inferiority for black and brown folks. But sometimes like Asian folks and people in the middle you know, because colorism is at play too, but that proximity to whiteness, right? So back when they created that racial hierarchy, right, which is the, the um, like white supremacy uh, ideology is the father of race. Race was developed for the system of oppression of racism, which is a white supremacy ideology. So using that fake science, they came up with that racial hierarchy where white was considered fully human, but they called it at that time Caucasoid, right? And then you had Mongoloid, that's the term they used. Those were Asians and they were considered a lesser quality of human, but uh, still human. And then you had Astroloid, which we would call today the indigenous and native people. And they were considered to be savages. But there was a small possibility that you could kill the Indian and save the man and some of them, right. which led to the horrible Indian boarding schools and all the of Indian that. schools, yeah. Right, and then we had the Negroid at the bottom, right? And the Negroid was considered to be closer in relation to monkeys and gorillas and chimpanzees, to primates, than they were human. And so with that racial hierarchy, or that spectrum from white to black, right, um, there was that internalized racial inferiority on the white side, and for those that are in proximity to whiteness, like the like Asian folks and other folks, right? But then, um, and the internalized racial inferiority on the other side, but sometimes for the folks in the middle, right? The lighter skinned people, right? They can manifest both. Right. They internalize racial inferiority via the white folks and, and white racism, but then their own colorism and proximity to whiteness, they then, act as a foot of oppression on black and indigenous folks and displaying internalized racial superiority. And so that's why it's important for all of us to, you know, when we're doing this multicultural, multiracial work to locate ourselves, right? And our bias and our socialization because anti-blackness is real and pervasive because it's that polar contrast in the white supremacy ideology where white is the ideal and black is at the bottom 
and you're somewhere in that spectrum. So even amongst Black people, there's colorism. Remember, oh, when you get into some fraternities, you have to pass the brown paper bag test, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, uh, that's one that, you know, often comes up because you always have these uh, groups that want to do brown bag discussions. And, you know, you have to uh, bring them up to date with history. Um, you know, and and it, it is it is one of the things that really, you know, I think we have to, uh, come, we have to confront, um, especially in, you know, there, there's that South American uh, internalized racism. Uh, many of the people in South America have African descent, uh, but they will, you know, deny it. They will, you know, abuse people that are darker. Um, it's, it's another issue that we um, have to deal with and that we, you know, have to, to, to grapple with because the, the issue of racism and internalized racism is it has all kinds of negative effects. I mean, right. from physiological effects to mental health issues. And sometimes we don't understand that when that person comes up to our door and they're angry. Well, if you've been feeling microaggressions for a whole day and you show up at the door, absolutely you're gonna be angry. Um, so much good material out there. Uh, we've talked about a, a couple, uh, Dr. Anjali Singh, um, has uh, her her book on uh, internalized racism is amazing. Uh, there's also uh, Dr. Joyce DeGru, uh and her book is, is called Post Traumatic uh, Slave Syndrome, uh, and she's pretty amazing. Um, but one I'm really diving into now, and you know, one thing it really kind of uncovers is cultural, um, uh, the cultural support for. Uh, mainly the civil rights movement, but throughout history, the writers and lawyers and doctors and, you know, those who put their life on the line to talk about lynching. So um, just incredible book. 400 Souls is Ibram Kendi's book. I'm at about 200 souls at this point. It's really thick. <laughs> but so many good resources out there for people. Be your own historian. There is so much to learn. You, 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 uh, you need years. It's, it's not a, a quick read. Um, and every time you pick up one of these really well-written books, it really, you know, kind of moves in the direction of uh, kind of desire to learn. And it's, it's a benefit to everybody. So we have to fight this idea that, you know, we uh, don't want our kids to understand history. Um, you know, if, if, you don't, uh, if, if you don't remember history, you'll repeat it. And, and that's why we do this work, at least I do, to make sure that we never repeat all of that. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time. And I'd love any you know, last comments you have, Dr. Green. Uh, you've been an incredible, incredible guest. And I knew you. Oh, no, thank you, darling. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, being from South Carolina, I think I, I love South Carolina. The people in South Carolina are it's such a kind culture, right? And even racism shows up very differently in South Carolina than in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, Washington, where I live. And if I had to choose, I don't like to choose between racisms, but people are more direct about where they stand, right? It's not this kind of covert stuff. It's a, it's a greater honesty where, where everyone stands. But I really believe that places like South Carolina where kind of the, the, the ethos and the culture of kindness and honesty of the people can bring the greatest hope of bringing unity amongst poor and working class uh, black and white and Latino and indigenous folks. Um, and so I just wanna encourage everyone to organize 
to come together across racial lines and don't be flamboozled by large corporations that have bought out our government and trying to tear us apart, right? We all deserve to be here. And, 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 and I think a sign of that within each person will be when they see a child being torn away from, a, from their Ukrainian mother, or they see a black mother wailing about their child that was shot by police, or whether they see a, a white mother in rural South Carolina that is grieving because their child died of an opioid overdose, or a, a Latino mother that has her child pulled from her at the border, that we see all those children as our children, and we grieve and we move with urgency. And that's the place we need to be because these really are all of our children. And we could have a really, really great country, right? There's enough for all of us. And so we really need to move beyond um, being flamboozled by um, you know, strategies to divide us. Yeah. Amazing, uh, really, really powerful. And for all of you that are listening, I hope you got uh, some new ideas, some new uh, directions for you to be able to increase your knowledge, to be part of a solution. And as Dr. Green said, we have to think of all of these children as our children, and we have to think of each of us as, as, as friends, companions, and people that we want to work with to move this country to a better place. Uh, we thank the South Carolina Department of Mental Health for allowing us to have this conversation. And we look forward to more conversations in the future. Uh, thank you so much and have a wonderful day. This concludes Racial Equity, a podcast episode presented by the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. Thank you for listening. Music excerpt by Audio Result. All Your Love, under Creative Commons Licensing. Adjusted for Length by SCDMH.